0: Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Welcome everyone, welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me for episode 345 as we get a chance to speak with Esha Chabra. Now, she's just written a book called Working to Restore, and that was the jumping off point for our conversation because we talk about some of the things that she's observed in the business world. And this is one of those conversations that I love because we end up going down all kinds of rabbit holes, and that includes her describing her childhood, moving to America at a young age what it's been like traveling the world as a journalist, and the interviews she's done to prepare this book. I really, really enjoyed this conversation, and I know you will as well. If you do, then why not check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog? The goal of Seeds is to record audio conversations with a variety of people who are doing really inspiring things. I think we can learn a lot from each other. If this does resonate with you, then would you be willing to tell one other person about Seeds? And in the show notes, I've put a link to theseeds.nz, and I've also put a link to Esha's book, and I've also put a link to some of the other conversations that come up during this interview. Now let's get straight into this conversation with Esha. All right. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Esha Chabra, who's a writer and journalist who's been covering sustainability for more than a decade. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me, Stephen.
0: I'm really excited to have this conversation because I want to read this book. (laughs) Um, Before we started recording, I was sharing that my vision is that one day we would look to see business as actually having a positive impact, and actually, as your title says, working to restore. So I would really love to find out about the book. And we have a mutual um, connection point, Um, Brianne West, who's been a guest on this podcast before. um, She's the one who posted about your book, and that's how we got connected. So that's really cool that we can connect across continents. Um, But I would love to start, before we talk about the book, just about your own background. Could you give us a little bit of a a thumbnail picture of what was life like for you when you were, say, four or five years old?
1: Oh, gosh, it was very different. I was living in Delhi. I was born in Delhi in India, and I'm a first-generation immigrant to the United States. So my parents and I, we moved when I was about six years old to the U.S. But um, as a child, yeah, I grew up in India in, in the 80s.
0: Wow. So do you remember, like six years old, you're old enough for some memories to still be there. What What do you remember about India?
1: I remember a lot. I mean, I remember the, the flat that we lived in, in Delhi. I remember, you know, going to school and getting dropped off by the bus. I must have been in, you know, pre-kindergarten or preschool like that. Um, and then I remember obviously coming here to the States and um, that was a really transformative period. It was you know, the story of an immigrant struggle and uh, trying to find your place in a new country. And then shortly after we arrived here in Southern California in 1994, we had the Northridge earthquake. And that was just a huge memory, you know, as a eight-year-old child at that time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think part of that has also framed my work because I've had this opportunity to be somewhat of a global citizen. Um, I think it just frames your perspective going through life.
0: Your parents and their decision to go or to move to a new country, like that's a big call to make with a young child. What were they thinking? What were they hoping for when they made the move?
1: Um, I come from a very entrepreneurial family. Everybody's in business. And it was the same for, for my parents. They were looking at, you know, better opportunities that they could have here in the United States. This was before India had just opened up. India really opened up in the 90s in terms of economics and the market. Um, So I think for them, it was just looking at the U.S. as this land of where you could start a business, you could have any kind of life that you wanted. Um, And also, I think my dad just has that real kind of courageous spirit in him where he just kind of goes for things and he's a risk taker. So... um, that really defined uh, the early years for me. And uh, as a result, you know, even though I have grown up here, I may mean, I think of myself in many ways very American. Um, there has been a shift, you know, because when I was growing up in the 90s, there were there was less discussion about diversity. There was less discussion about inclusion. If you had a name like mine, it was still a bit like awkward and difficult to pronounce. Um, so, you know, my name in Hindi is actually Aisha, but nobody could say it. So it became Esha. And then my friends called me Esh. Um, So you're just kind of much more sensitive to these cultural differences. And I think that really plays into being a journalist because I spend a lot of time being in the field in different countries and interacting with people from so many different cultures. And so I'm very fascinated and intrigued and I'm I'm always very sensitive to the fact that, you know, these are people who have a completely different way of thinking and that's okay. It's fine.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Um, In a way, we're similar because I moved to New Zealand when I was seven years old. Um, So as you can hear my accent, (laughs) I never changed my accent. So even in a New Zealand context, I grew up here. This is where I feel at home, but I still have something that separates me. And it's been interesting over the years to process that and come to terms with that and confident in that in a way. Um, But I think it does help me to better understand people who are moving here or who are moving to new places as well. Um, Do you remember when you were six? Did your parents sit down with you and say, Esha, we have some news? We're moving to America. Like, is that a memory or did it just happen?
1: (laughs) No, no. and I think any Asian child can probably relate. I feel like Asian parents have a different way of communicating. It's very (laughs) Um, non-communicative. No, I mean, it was a decision that they made. And I just remember emptying out our flat in Delhi, and then moving to this, you know, small apartment here in LA, where we started our journey. Um, So no, it was never that kind of a discussion. Um,
0: Mm. Yeah. And the first years, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but what was that like arriving in this new country and presumably going to school? And yeah, how was that?
1: It was, I mean, it was financially, it was hard. It was a struggle. My parents had to build a new life. Um, they had to build a business from the ground up. And, um, for me, I was a student at a local public school in America now, which is a very different culture. So I do remember my early years, like there were certain cultural references that I just never got, you know, (laughs) because I, I didn't have that background. I hadn't seen the right movies or the right TV shows. Um, but, um, honestly, it wasn't that bad of an assimilation. And I think part of that is just having the right attitude and being, you know, open to a lot of different things, um, which I feel like my parents have always been that way. They've been very open minded. And the other thing is also, you know, I was in such early years that you're still being formed. And so it's not like a teenager, you know, or somebody who's much older. So I, I didn't have that much of that kind of cultural struggle per se beyond just the usual, you know, differences in food or language, things like that.
0: Mm, yeah, that's really good. What else have you learned from your parents? It sounds like they were quite willing to try new things and and be a bit adventurous.
1: Um, tenacity. I think that's the one trait that I've been told many times by people um, mm-hmm. that I have. And I think that comes from, from being a first generation immigrant, you're just so used to having to kind of uh, push through the the roadblocks and the challenges. And so um, it's something that I've learned also just seeing them that you, you face difficult difficulties, you face obstacles, you don't let it get, you know, get to you. You just keep on going with it. And also like to, to just go after your dreams. I mean, the kind of career that I've been fortunate to have in the last three decades, um, you know, it's really incredible. Like it's not something that you sort of sit down in high school or in junior high and you write this essay, like I want to travel the world and write a book. Like you don't really write that. So um, I think just to have that spirit of like, you can do anything if you really want to.
0: Yeah, that's great. I always like to hear these stories of what we learn from our parents and what we learn from the previous generations. Because too often, I think, particularly from a Western mindset, there's this idea somehow that we're all self-made, you know, that oh, look at that person, they achieved all these things. And actually, if you sat with a person, if if they were really honest, they would point to many, many other people that were actually inspiration or led to them to do what they do. So yeah, it's really Absolutely.
1: good. And also being in LA and Southern California in general, it's such a melting pot. I mean, we have every culture here. We have every you know ethnicity here practically. And so there is just far more of this attitude of openness and learning from one another. And it's really, I think it's it's very, um, it would have been a very different experience if I had landed up somewhere else in the United States. You know, if, if it was somewhere in the Midwest or somewhere where it's a little bit more homogenous, it would have certainly been a different experience. But for me, like going to school here, I used to see children that were also Asian, East Asian, South Asian, you know, all different colors. And so it is a, a far more of a global community here as well.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So let's just keep tracking through um, primary school, or you know, young education, getting into high school. Were there certain subjects that you enjoyed more than others? Were Were you starting to tend towards writing, or what you do today? Or yeah describe that Absolutely.
1: for us. Absolutely. I didn't really know what I wanted to do as a career, but I was really interested in English and I was really interested in history. History was the big subject in high school for me. I also just had an incredible history teacher. I think teachers are so important when you have that one teacher that's super compelling and really, um, you know, charismatic and fun to be around. You really tend to lean on that subject more. So yeah, so I had a great history teacher. Loved history, all different types, world history, European history, art history. Um, and then I uh, went to college and it was there that I had two professors in English who really told me, like, you should consider doing something around English. Interestingly enough, in high school, I went to a high school where the English program was pretty competitive and pretty hard. So um, English was not my highest score. Um I struggled a little bit in high school, but when I went to college, I found my footing. Um, I went to Georgetown for undergrad, which was in Washington, DC. And I had at that point, the idea that I wanted to do possibly do political journalism. So, um, you know, in the nineties, this was the height of cable news and um, CNN. And so I used to find current events really interesting. I used to find, you know, journalism in general, interesting. But I didn't know if that was 100% for me. Um, so I went to Georgetown and I had a professor who was teaching English to freshman kids. And he was like, you should you should consider being an English major. And I just said to him, I'm like, are you mad? I mean, I really, I don't think that's my strong point. I can do social sciences, but I don't know about English. Um, and then I think the next semester or the next year, he put me in a class with a bunch of seniors and we were reading these like novels and dissecting them. And he's like, yeah, I think you can keep up. You'll be fine. I'm like, OK. <laughs> um, so it, it's really helpful when you have people like that who just kind of tell you to to dive in and, and take that risk and go for it because they see something in you. Um, So then that led me to pursue a few journalistic internships. Um, I I worked at CNN as an intern. I worked at CBS News as an intern when I was in D.C. And that basically told me, I don't want to be a television journalist. (laughs) and so then can I, I just fun. can I just ask
0: yeah. a question we'll, we'll come back to that in a second but I'm always interested in those key figures in our lives and how yeah. they influence us can we just go back to the high school teacher that you mentioned and the history side of things mm-hmm. what was it about that teacher that um that made them different or that what what was it in their attitude what was it that they brought to the classroom
1: um she was a very no-nonsense strong Woman, I would say. But her style of teaching was very engaging and interesting. I mean, to make European history come alive to like, you know, 14, 15 year olds is not an easy task. Um, <laughs> But it was really, it was multidimensional. Like, you know, we looked at artwork. We listened to a lot of cultural content. um, We watched films. We also did the traditional kind of textbook learning. Um, But it was just really interactive. She would... Really have you immerse yourself in the material rather than it just being like you know go memorize some dates of some wars and you know regurgitate them on a test kind of thing. Um, And she was just also a person who, as a student, I felt like if I ever you know needed help or if I ever wanted to ask for any kind of guidance, she was very approachable. Um, And she was very uh, one-on-one with students as well. She would set aside time; you could go ask her questions. And so um, I think that kind of support. Is also helpful when you're a high school student, you're trying to navigate your way through. And if you get stuck somewhere or you don't do well in a subject, you know, just to be able to have somebody that you can talk to openly and not be judged. um, That's fantastic. So, yeah. yeah,
0: that's great. And what was her name?
1: Uh, her name is Michelle Austin. Yeah, Mrs. Austin, we used to call her. And uh, she no longer teaches from what I understand. She's retired now, but uh, it wasn't just me. I think there was like a little fan club for her.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Well, the reason I ask is I I think it's important to give people shout outs sometimes, you know, and the, the reality is um, maybe you've done this, but equally maybe not yet is to let people know the role that they played, because think about a teacher in the mid 1990s and you've got 14 and 15 year old children, you're teaching them history. And what an amazing legacy that, how long ago is that, right? 30 years <laughs> later um, that actually there's been a big impact on someone's life and what they chose to do. So yeah, it's really cool. I, I think teachers are by far the most under appreciated of any profession, if you think about it, like the role that they play uh, <laughs> and and the influence that they can have if they do it the right way it's really amazing
1: Completely.
0: Um, so just going forward then um you mentioned the internships yeah tell us a bit more about that like what what years was this was this late 90s this or in the 2000s, 2000s. Yeah, okay 2000s. so that's a interesting time just as a world's you know we've got the twin towers there's lots of things going on with countries and the wars in Iraq and yeah, was it that sort of environment that you were stepping into?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was in high school when nine 11 happened. um, And I remember seeing that in the morning because we were in Pacific time. Um, But then um, high school, I mean, sorry, college was the second Bush uh, Bush administration. It was his second term, I believe that was the time. And so, yes. So my job was, um, Running around the Capitol building trying to get sound bites from Donald Rumsfeld and some of these other folks that were in office at the time. And it was just really interesting. I mean, I was an intern for a congressional correspondent, and then I was an intern for someone who'd been covering the Iraq War actually in Iraq. He was one of the chief correspondents at CNN. And so he would send over footage at night, and I would sit down with the producer, and we would go through the footage and he was kind of covering a story at that time that was on the state of our military equipment there um you know. as as a person who perhaps didn't agree with everything that was going on politically at the time, uh, that was kind of hard to, to be covering it day and night. Um, But also it just gave me a window into the world of political journalism. It's um, it's a really tough profession. I I do have a lot of respect for people who do it. Um, It's a long hours. You don't necessarily get to spend a lot of time with your family and friends. And oftentimes you're asked to make like last minute decisions and you're just, you know, put on a plane to go somewhere and cover a story. And so that was the part about it for me that I was like, you know, I don't know if this ticks all the boxes for me. Also, I really didn't want to cover politics um, after being in DC for four years. I saw this as something that was kind of a highly cyclical, you know, system that happens. And I was like, I'd really like to cover stories that I feel like are underrepresented or around communities that are not getting enough attention. They're not landing up on the front pages or in the news. Um and and so that's why I decided that, you know, I wasn't going to pursue a career in, in television journalism.
0: Right. That's really interesting. And it's great that you got the chance to experience it, right? Because then you know, (laughs) so often in life, we have an image. And to be honest, I can imagine like television, there is a bit of a glamour sort of, I'm on CNN or whatever, like, that's pretty cool. But it's good that you are able to decide, I want to do something else. So what did that other something else? What did that become?
1: Um, so I had a, um, a friend who was at the Georgetown campus, and he told me about this fellowship that was through Rotary International. And I, to be honest, had not heard of Rotary or interacted with Rotarians much. Um, and he said you should consider applying for it. It will help you cover your graduate studies, and then you can go and be a part of the organization and do some of the humanitarian work that they do. And so I applied, and I got in, and it helped cover my master's program, which was at the London School of Economics, but It was a year in between that I had. It was sort of like a gap year almost I had. And um, during that period, I got really immersed in the work that Rotary was doing at the time, which was with WHO, UNICEF, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and it was on polio. Um, So there were still four countries, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nigeria that still had polio cases. So they would go and they would send volunteers to go support the local health workers as they did these kind of polio campaigns. So I went along and I was sent to India and they were like, you can speak the language, you know, the culture, like go there kind of thing. And I spent a lot of time in the field in Uttar Pradesh, which is um, an area outside of Delhi. It's like this state that has 300 million people in it. It's amazing how many people are in such a small geography. Um, and I spent a lot of time with the health workers and I was just blown away. I'm like, these are the people we should be writing about, you know? I mean, they're doing incredible work and they're really not getting paid all that much for it either. Um, so I started freelancing stories and, um, I would take, you know, my little camera in those days, a and shoot camera and took some photos. I sent it to some editors back in the U S and they started picking up the stories. And then that was really the true beginning of my freelance career, you know?
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And what was it like going back because you had left at age six, and now you're coming back in a way to the, yeah. at least the the cultural motherland. <laughs> what was that like for you arriving there? Was it? Yeah, how did you feel?
1: Um, you know, I had been back to India a couple times prior to that, but more so to visit family and this time not to visit family but to go and do this work. It was a very different experience. Um, India had changed, you know uh, India in the last twenty years had just economically boomed. Um, When I left India, when we left India, there were no malls, there were no like, you know, great high rise buildings that were uh, dotting the landscape, at least not, you know, outside of, let's say, Mumbai and all. Um, And now this was an India that was very economically savvy, um, becoming richer, the middle class was becoming far more comfortable. And so it was a very different country that I was stepping back into. It also came, you know, with its challenges, like there was more traffic, there was more pollution. And, you know, India often becomes the poster child for pollution um, every year. So it had its setbacks also, but it was exciting to see India uh, kind of flourishing.
0: Mm, that's great. Yeah, one of the guests I've interviewed, um, his name was Siddharth Salakar, and he's from India, and he um, he's actually in the process of moving to New Zealand. He's part of something called the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, mm. um, which uh, and he's doing some amazing work around um, relationships and how we measure them online. Um, what does our reputation mean online? Um, anyway, in, in that interview, we talked a lot about his childhood and growing up and the changes that he had seen, because similar to you, he was born in the 1980s and the vast infrastructure that had been built in that period, you know, of about two decades was changing the landscape completely. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, it's kind of a strange question, but did you have a sense of I'm American when you're coming back there or did you, yeah. How does that work for you? Cause I know for me, it's a constant, question of like, I was born in America, but I actually grew up in New Zealand. I feel a connection here. Um, Yeah, how was that?
1: Yeah, I mean, especially at that age, my Hindi was not so fluent. I hadn't been speaking that much Hindi. Um, I think people can also just tell by your body language, like they can identify that you're not from here. So yeah, there's definitely this sense. I think, I mean, and I've had this conversation with many friends, there's definitely this sense of like, I don't belong here, I don't belong there kind of thing, sort of hanging in the middle. So that's why I've always thought of myself more as like a global child, Um, also because I'd lived in London, I'd lived in D.C., I'd traveled. um, But yeah, I think so, for sure. I mean, India, um, this would have been 2008 um, was that trip, I think, first one. And so, um, you know, you look at 2008 to, to now, India has also changed so much. India has become far more global, I would say, in the last decade as well. So, yeah, there was definitely that kind of cultural confusion
0: (laughs) yeah yeah no that's great and the writing that you're doing like what what happened next where did that lead you to
1: um i was really encouraged i mean i had editors at the guardian at the atlantic all these places that were taking my stories and i was like look if i can do this why not run with it so i just continued to freelance stories and um in this journey i was introduced to an incredible journalist david bornstein um who had started something that was solutions-oriented for journalism. It's called the Solutions Journalism Network. And he was just kind of getting this project off the ground. And him and his colleague, Tina Rosenberg, they both started this column at the New York Times called The Fixes. And their whole approach was like, look, we know that the world has problems. Yes, there's all kinds of issues, whether it's climate or social or public health. Um, But let's start talking about some of the folks that are introducing solutions and let's look at them critically to see if they're working or not. Um, This was also the time that Dr. Yunus had become quite well known for his microfinance work. Um, People had really kind of woken up to the potential of microfinance. Um, I remember Nicholas Kristoff wrote a column in The New York Times that was about key Eva, which is this, you know, Bay Area organization that was connecting people around the world through microfinance. And so I was very interested in this space. So I said, you know, I would like to write about these so-called social entrepreneurs, early stage social entrepreneurs of those days. Um, and so I got plugged into that world and I started freelancing stories, you know, around that. And that sort of became my beat, um, you know, for the lack of a a better word. It was just uh, something I fell into. I really enjoyed speaking with these people. I found their work fascinating. Um, I then was given kindly some fellowships and scholarships through the UN Foundation, through the Pulitzer Center um, in Washington, D.C. And, you know, I could to them I'd like to cover this story or this series of stories can you please send me you know here and they would help cover the travel costs and that was great for journalists who wanted to do this kind of reporting because media outlets may or may not have that support um, or bandwidth to be able to cover travel costs and so I did that and so And that allowed me to travel widely. Um, I often, you know, did reporting from India, but I also traveled to other places and started writing more broadly about this space. And so the book, which, you know, we'll get to, but is in many ways a culmination of, you know, a decade of reporting.
0: Yeah, that's really great. I have a question about what happened next in your career, but I also just curious, you've written many articles, you know, you've written a lot. What are the elements that make up a really good article? Like when you're reading somebody else's work, what are you looking for? Because that's something I'm always wanting to learn myself. What are the elements that build in that you go, yep, that was a really good piece?
1: I had various teachers and then mentors um, tell me, you know, in journalism, it's the who, what, where, when, why. That's what you're trying to answer. But really, it's the why. That's the most important question. So when you are reading a story and they have a really clear why as to why they're writing that story, um, that I often find is the best example. So you know, why are you starting this business? Why are you running this organization? And that is front and center. And so it's very clear as to what is the context of this? What are the broader implications for this? Um, There's hundreds of startups, there's thousands of NGOs, right? And they're all doing fantastic work. But an article that's really able to bring out that why and make it front and center, I feel like are the ones that are the most compelling. I also personally find stories that are just um, vignettes or sort of, you know, longer features of interesting individuals, very fascinating. You don't get to see that, you know, as much. I feel like a lot of news is just daily news or breaking news or um, the, the top of the line affairs kind of thing. But when you get into these more really interesting um Features on individuals, like, you know, on a farmer or on one particular teacher somewhere. I find those kind of stories also really interesting, the human aspect of them.
0: It's great. And how do you get that human aspect when you're interviewing somebody? How do you get to those little gold nuggets that show who they are?
1: Um, I have learned that, I mean, if you have the luxury of time and you have the budget to be able to do that as well, I mean, that's a whole broader discussion about media today. But um, it's really time. It's really being able to spend a fair amount of time with someone. I don't know if you can get it in just like a one hour conversation. You have to spend a fair amount of time with people and ideally in person, if you really want to get at it. Um, But, uh, you know, some of the people that I've come across in my reporting, I look back and I think about it. It's like, yeah, because I spent the day with them traveling and seeing their work firsthand, you know? And so then they're going to talk as they're showing you throughout the day and they might drop one of those nuggets at lunchtime. Like it might not be during the formal Q and A. So um, yeah, I think just having an open discourse.
0: Yeah, because those are the best pieces that I find, you know, a profile of somebody, for example, it's, it's where they are able to capture a little tiny story that exemplifies the broader principle of how that person is in the world. And mm-hmm. I'm just thinking like the mutual person, um, Brianne West, mm-hmm. is somebody who I interviewed on the podcast, and I was talking to her and we got on to animals right? So nothing to do with her business um, as such, but she was saying, if it's raining and there's puddles forming outside, if she sees a little worm in the puddle, you know, on the concrete, she'll go lift the worm out and put it back on the grass to save it. And I just thought, what an amazing little tiny story that's meaningless on its own, but it exemplifies a real big part of who she is as a person. Um, Yeah. It's just those little things you're looking for. Right.
1: Absolutely. And it's also action. So like when you're with them in person, you know, if something they do like that, that exemplifies their personality. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because at the end of the day, I mean, it's all about being human and that's what journalism is. You're telling human stories. And so if you can bring out the humanity in someone beyond their work, you know, or their profession, that's what will help connect people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Well, thanks for going there. I just, just always really curious, even for myself, how can I improve my writing? Cause it's always, I think you're right. It's that, that why when, and I'd love to talk about that with you a little bit in a minute um, before we talk about the book, but coming back to your career <laughs> in terms of the progress and things. Yeah. You're, you're, outside of america is that did you end up in london did i hear you say or what happened yeah i was
1: at the lsc i was at the lsc and um after i finished there i was part of this cohort where you were allowed to like extend your visa and so i stayed behind for a while and then i ultimately had to move back to the states and make that my home base here but i was traveling constantly i mean i was always on the road in those days
0: yeah wow and you liked that like the the diversity of the places and the people
1: i loved it i mean i think at that age you're also so excited to just experience everything and so it was exhilarating it was really fun um i got to go to some places on the planet that you know i, I mean i don't know how realistic even it would be for a tourist like for example i went to bhutan which is this tiny little himalayan kingdom Um, and it was just a fascinating trip. I remember being taken around by this gentleman who runs a eye hospital there. And, um, he was showing me not only the hospital, but he was also taking me to all the small villages where they run the camps and they do the cataract surgeries. And then, you know, he says, okay, well, tomorrow we're going to meet with the queen and I, for tea, I'm like, Oh, okay. You know, I didn't pack anything quite for that. So (laughs) I'm running around to like trying to find something suitable to wear. Um, So you do have these kind of just fun serendipitous moments also when you're traveling, um, which I think is so exhilarating when you're in your twenties.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Another guest I interviewed was Jonathan Lee. He's actually, he lives in California He's a professional photographer and videographer. And so he's traveled the world in Himalayas, New Zealand, America, all over. And we had an amazing discussion about that journey that he's been on and how he views photography as art. And when mm-hmm. he's taking photos of the people, he's actually capturing, you know, something that's really, really special.
1: Mm-hmm. And when it
0: comes to you and, you know, that question of why, um, what is it that is was You know, you're getting a little bit older. You're learning about your place in the world. um, You're meeting amazing people, the queen of Bhutan. (laughs) Um, What was that like in the sense of are you getting a sense of your why? Um, What was it that was motivating you to keep on this path?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I felt like I had fallen into a career that was designed for me. I loved writing. I loved meeting people. I loved going and learning about these different programs and these different social entrepreneurs and what they were doing. I really enjoyed it. I mean, there was nothing about it that I could... Um, that I could say that was a drawback to be honest. I think the only drawback and the hard part of it is that the media landscape has shifted a lot in the last 10 years. And so the kind of reporting and the kind of time that we were able to spend on certain stories just was getting shorter and shorter and shorter as the digital age was getting further along. And so that became a challenge, you know, that affects budgets, that affects the kind of stories that you can write. but even within all that, you know, I kept coming across people that were really kind and supportive. And that's the other thing that I found really um, just eye opening was, you know, people that come along in your journey, if you kind of put yourself out there and you really make it clear as to what you want to do to usher you along. I mean, I remember meeting, for example, the managing editor at the time for Forbes, um, this gentleman, Tom Post, who's now retired. And uh, you know, he just met me for breakfast one day in New York, and he was like, I love what you're writing about, I want you to write about it for us. I mean, there was just not a lot of discussion needed. Um, and soon after, you know, I had started contributing, and to this day, that's why I've kept that, that um, column is because I've just loved being able to write about some of these folks um, that also wouldn't get the coverage as easily. I mean, I've met entrepreneurs really early on in their journey, maybe they just started six months ago, a year ago. Um, and then written about them. And then they send me a message like five years later, oh, Esha, this was the first story. And look at where we are now. Thank you so much for the support. And so it's nice to be able to to do that for people that are truly trying to do something good for the planet.
0: Yeah, that's great. In a way, your role, it has echoes of how I view my role. So let's see if you resonate with this. But I view my role as being like a catalyst because as a catalyst, I can come and I can help amplify somebody's stories. And I, I, my actual job is as a lawyer. So someone will come to me and they'll have an idea or a concept, and then I'll be able to help them translate it into the legal documents that will enshrine their purpose and be clear about their impact. So I feel like it's a real privilege to do that because I can't help feed a thousand children, but I can help the person to set up a charity that will feed a thousand children. And in a way, it's similar with you, like you're not going to do everything that these people do, but you can amplify the stories out there so that other people can learn from them.
1: Absolutely, one hundred percent. I mean, and I think that's why we all have a role to play in this, you know, it's not just the entrepreneurs themselves, it's all the people around them that are kind of helping them along and getting them to being successful.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think Brienne, um, who who's come up a couple of times, I think I think mm. she felt similarly with because you read a story about etique and mm. and um what they were doing with the soap bars and things. So Yeah, I'm pretty sure she's very thankful (laughs) that you took the time to write something. Um,
1: And look at where she's at now. And she's kind of, you know, been one of the early pioneers of this zero waste, zero plastic, you know, bathroom, uh, toiletries kind of movement. And so I just I think it's fantastic. And that's what it takes. You know, somebody like her will do it in New Zealand or in whatever geography and then somebody else will see it and they'll replicate it for their geography, perhaps. And that's how you get this ripple effect.
0: Yeah, and actually that's how you get what I often talk about, the paradigm shifts of thinking, which Mm -hmm. is we used to think this, and today we can't even imagine how we thought that. (laughs) Um, And of course, the role for someone like you, maybe a little bit of me, is how do we advance the paradigm shift of thinking so that we don't take decades and decades and decades to have a realization for example, about the role of business. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So so I'd love to find out more about the book. Maybe just bring us up to speed in terms of your career. Um, sure. Yeah, what, what happened next and and how did you end up where you are today and, and starting working on a book?
1: So the language kept shifting. You know, it started with social entrepreneurship, then it became corporate social responsibility, and then it was mission-driven companies and then the rise of the B Corps. Uh, and so I just kept covering that whole movement. And as I realized that most of the books, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the books when I was doing kind of like a landscape survey were either written by the founders themselves, there were some books that were written by, um, you know, entrepreneurs themselves, and then there were a lot of books that were written by academics, and they had a very theoretical approach to the landscape but I just wanted to write something that was like simply journalistic. I mean, here's 30 stories of companies across industries, across the world that are using their business as a vehicle for change. Um, none of them are perfect. They all have their flaws, but you know, for the person who's not necessarily living and breathing in this space, that's the thing. Um, you and I might be keeping a tab on all of this, but, you know, I just had a conversation the other night, I did a little talk, and it was to a community of people that had never heard of what a B Corp is. So I was explaining to them what a B Corp is. So, you know, you, you realize that you're living in sort of an echo chamber and in a bubble. And um, so I decided that, you know, I'd love to try to do this book. And in 2018, started to put it together. And there are, like I said, 30 some odd companies that are featured across industries. So we look at food, fashion, travel, finance, health, the energy sector, plastics, and and circular economy. Um, And so it really gives you a broad swath and it shows that this is happening globally. Um, I felt like at at times when I was doing the reporting, like it was really hot in California, it was really hot in the UK, or there were certain communities that were really getting into it in Germany and all. but now it's just it's everywhere. And and that was part of the narrative of this book is that, you know, if you want to get into this movement, look, there's so many opportunities that you can you can be a part of.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I often describe it as being a little bit like surfing. You know, you're out waiting for the wave to come. And then the wave forms and you catch that wave in. And it feels to me like for the last say decade, two decades, there has been a swell coming and and there's change coming. And all those terms that you've used are becoming better known and B Corps is rising and you know, people are having conversations about what's the responsibility of governance? Who who are we here for? Is it the Milton Friedman conception of shareholder primacy, or are we moving towards The Lorax over here speaking for the trees, like, where do we sit? And what's our role as a director of a company as well? So I think this type of your book and examples like it are good because they shine a light on the fact that this could become a new normal, rather than look at those people in the corner. They're a bit odd, what do they do? (laughs) Which is why I've always been a little bit um, worried about terminology, because the words that we use matter. And so I've actually moved away from the term social enterprise because I fear that it could become a, oh, the social enterprise stuff, that's for those people over there. Whereas the the principles of what is underlying a movement like social enterprise or B Corp or, or any of these things, it actually applies to every company. And it's not something that should just be for a select little, you know, ourselves away from the world as monks over here and and we're the ones who care for the earth it's something that we all need to do so anyway that's a long way to say i'm glad that this book is coming out because it will show more people that there are examples of how it's happening um so what's the process yeah what's the process like to write a book is it um yeah does it take a long time
1: It does take a long time. It depends on the style of the book that you decide to write. So this one was, I mean, I think when I look back on it, it was particularly daunting, um, because you have 30 companies, you have to, you know, I tried to meet as many of them as I could, I kindly was given a grant by the Fort Foundation, which let me do the reporting for this book. Um, so yeah, it was like a year and a half of me just trying to do the on the ground reporting. And then probably about six months of just sitting and writing the first draft of it. And then it's been multiple, you know, editing cycles after that. It's a, you know, it's it's a couple years of your life that you're going to put into this. It's certainly not something that you can do very quickly for this kind of a reported book, because there were so many stats, there's so much data in there, everything had to be fact checked multiple times. So the book, since you haven't had a chance to see it yet, the book, uh, each chapter, like the first chapter is on soil, for example. So there's like a short introduction, which kind of explains why soil matters. And then we get into four or five case studies in that particular chapter um, that are looking at different ways of tackling soil health. So You know, there's a rice farm in California, Lundberg Family Farms, that produces rice-based products here in the United States. Um, You know, there's a famous shoe company called Veja, which makes shoes uh, in Brazil using Amazonian rubber and organic cotton from northeastern Brazil, and they manufacture the whole thing in the southern part of the country. Um, Then there's another example of this really innovative company up in Sacramento, which is taking grocery waste, produce waste, and turning it into organic fertilizer that's ready to go into drip systems for farmers in the US because it's wild that despite all this you know interest in organics less than 5% of uh US farmland is still yeah, organic. It's just, it's a very small percentage of the entire, um, picture. So there's, you know, there's vignettes like this, there's, uh, stories and I don't get into the whole business model of every business. Instead, I just kind of pick out one thing that they're doing that feeds into that theme. And then that's what I focus on. Um, which is why I think this book will also resonate with people that are just, I see this a lot with Gen Z, like young people who are really interested in this movement and they're still exploring what their career could look like. They can pick up this read one chapter read one vignette and they can walk away feeling inspired like maybe this is you know the company that i want to go work for or this is the industry that i want to go be a part of um which is very different to to some of the other books i had seen in the space where you really are trying to argue for some kind of broader thesis or some kind of philosophical argument this is far more like just case studies
0: yeah well, that's, it's got a huge place because what do we resonate with a little bit like our conversation before it's what's the, why what's the story rather than, you know, here's some statistics about the number of B cores or something. Um, having the personal story definitely brings it to life. Yeah.
1: Absolutely.
0: That's great. And, um, having done the book, like what's your feelings are you optimistic for the future or did it make you realize how far we still have to go or yeah
1: this book is all about optimism in fact you know when we had sent the book to a few folks for reviews um all the blurbs came back saying i feel so hopeful after reading this book because i felt like the 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 dialogue around climate change and the environmental movement has become kind of heavy. I mean, I feel like we keep getting bombarded by these reports that keep telling us like we're getting hotter or we're not doing enough or, you know, um, biodiversity is decreasing, all of that. So this book is very hopeful. I am very hopeful. And I think that's part of it with the solutions journalism approach also is that, you know, when you're writing about these folks that are trying to create some kind of change, you're going to walk away feeling optimistic. Um, It's not to say that these companies have the answer and it's not to say that they're, you know, far from just perfection but they will take you in the right direction so actually one of the other big themes in this book is to go beyond just kind of surface level sustainability um, speaking of terms right so sustainability is this term that's being used left right and center and they the G word that I always talk about is you know greenwashing that's going on these days and so I really tried to pick out companies, that there's no corporates in the book. Um, they're all medium-sized companies that have probably been around for about a decade or so, some of them a little bit younger. So they've shown that the model works, but they're not huge multinationals. And that was also another part of this conversation that I hadn't seen. A lot of the other books that are in this sector did include the corporates and you know their initiatives. This is more like, no, 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 this company, this, like, for example, I'll give you Veja's example. Um. They're a shoe company, but they didn't set out really to be a fashion brand. They really set out to solve some some environmental issues. So they use rubber that's sourced from the Amazon. And in the Amazon, if you go there, you'll see areas of land that have been cleared for cattle farming and for timber. Now they're sourcing rubber from rubber trees that are indigenous to that landscape, native to that landscape. And there's communities there that are able to tap the rubber uh, trees for rubber and sell that rubber to Veja as well as to other clients and make money off of it. So they're not turning to cattle farming. They're not turning to timber. Um, And by creating that kind of local economy, they're doing something to preserve that landscape. Those were the kind of, you know, that was the why for VASIA, why they started that company. Um, So, I mean, those are the kind of companies that we're looking at in this book. They're really trying to dig deeper and make it a core part of their business. This is not some like sustainability program on the side. (laughs)
0: That's really interesting. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm glad to hear that because that's what we need to highlight is these examples of new innovation and new ways of doing things. And I'm glad you chose sort of smaller, medium-sized examples of it because one of the fears I have is that if we only talk about the big corporates with the billion-dollar budgets, <laughs> um, that there, there, honestly there can sometimes be a, a part of it is a marketing exercise And the values or the principles aren't deeply baked into the actual ethos of the company. It's seen more as a PR part, you know, that we want to sell more widgets. Therefore, we're going to come up with a campaign that celebrates this thing, whatever it is, because ultimately, we're still driven by that shareholder primacy model. Um, so, and and what you're saying, I think will definitely resonate with the next generation, because I don't know about you, but I talk with a lot of people coming up through, oh, well, actually, my daughter's 15, you know, like, she represents the next generation. And for those people, I think, increasingly, where do I work? A big part of it isn't going to be how much can you pay me? It's going to be, tell me about your actual supply chain, like, you're not pulling this over me, tell me more. <laughs> so. It's definitely a shift that I think is happening.
1: Yeah. And it's also, I mean, it's a one of the entrepreneurs said this in the book, that we don't need to have two or three large corporates doing this. We need to have hundreds of medium-sized companies, right, that are like this. So that goes back to this kind of replicating um, effect. And that's the... That's the thought process behind this. So like there's three shoe companies, I think, in the book, but there's space for everybody in the market. It doesn't need to be that we just need to transform the top five. Um, and then also this, there's this conversation that came up in the book a lot as I was talking with people was that what what is enough? You know, I mean, you kind of have to ask yourself, is scale always the answer, which has often been the driving factor in the startup space and even in the social impact space, you know, just keep scaling. That's what investors want. But some of these entrepreneurs are saying, well, no, I mean i don't I don't need to to go to that level. I'm quite happy here. I can maintain my supply chain. I can manage a healthy workforce, so i'm I'm gonna stay here. I don't need to keep growing infinitely,
0: yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's an amazing point because um actually one of the previous guests who you should talk to, <laughs> um, she's an expert in cacao. Um, so the which eventually becomes chocolate. Um, but but her company, what she's doing is sourcing it extremely sustainably and helping the indigenous people in the Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, actually understand what they're harvesting and the many other benefits beyond becoming chocolate because it's an amazing or original source of vitamins, minerals, all these other things. So um, she's set up some some amazing things. Una Brown is her name. Um, I'll send you the link to her interview. I think you would enjoy it. Um, We had a great conversation. Yeah. And I think uh, you're right. I actually was in Auckland yesterday, which is Um, up in the North Island. So I was just visiting some people there and I was having an amazing conversation with somebody who has the potential to change the ethos of how their companies, so he's part of a group of companies. And I I was encouraging them to be thinking about how do you build in mission and purpose into your founding documents so that it's not just words on the website, that if somebody actually looked at it and said, oh, your purpose is written as cause number one of your founding document. Like let's get beyond the platitudes to the substance. But if you could do that well, and if other people could look at you and say, look at that group of companies, look at how they are consistent with their ethos, their purpose, their mission. And in a New Zealand context, there's about 700,000 companies, like there's a lot of companies. And if we could get those companies to be embracing purpose and impact as a guiding heart of what they do, imagine the decisions that would be made that would be vastly different, I'm guessing, <laughs> from today. So it's, it sounds small, but if you start and become an example to others, then it might have a flow on of a much greater change.
1: This is definitely a space where we're not going to have success in solitude. You know, it really requires everyone to get on board. So, yeah, I agree.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The thing that motivates me is actually thinking about 100 years from now and wondering about about the world then. Like you and I will not be there, I'm presuming. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but. But what will it look like? What will it be? What will the role of companies be? And that's why I'm encouraged by a book like yours and and some of the work I'm doing down here in New Zealand is like, how do we reshape the role of business? I'm actually working on a little book now called Reimagining Business and trying Mm -hmm. to offer examples that I've come across of people who do things differently for the same why that you're talking about, like people can learn from each other and The reality is if we could have a blank piece of paper and say, how do we design companies? Like what's important? We probably would design them differently to how they are today. Because what they are today has originated over decades and decades of accumulation of, well, this is what you do. But if you had a blank piece of paper, you might actually design companies differently. So um, my hope is that over time, we'll realize this, we'll realize that companies are a fiction, they don't actually exist, and therefore we can reinvent and we can reimagine what they are and what their role is in the, in the world.
1: And I, I feel like that's what people are asking for. I mean, I think that this is not a topic that's specific to just, you know, benefit corporations or B Corps or anything. I mean, I talked to somebody who's working in healthcare, you know, they want their healthcare company to be thinking about these broader values and a mission instead of just profit. I mean, at least that's a story in the United States because we're privatized healthcare. But these are things that I feel like people are talking about in every industry. So it's not a crazy thought or a crazy ask to think what could business look like 100 years from now. I certainly hope it does not look like what it has for the last 20 years, for sure. Um, And all the media scrutiny in a way is good because it's really driving You know, us in that direction. We just have to be mindful of the kind of, like you said earlier, marketing and greenwashing that takes place. So, you know, is it genuinely happening or are we just talking about it?
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Well, congratulations on the book. And I just think it's really cool to hear a bit of your story um, because listening to your background, you know, coming in a way as an outsider, as an immigrant to a new country, it actually makes perfect sense. What you're doing today, because I can understand how you would be able to come alongside people and have those conversations um and that's always a synergy like I could have started the interview with, so tell me about the book,
1: mm-hmm. but
0: we wouldn't have had that richness of understanding how it how you've been led to then write the book, so I really appreciate that and i I loved hearing a bit even about your parents, about your high school teacher who inspired you, you know about those motives because yeah too often in the west it's all about what do you do and we don't we we don't um take the time I guess to step back and and learn about the motivation and why they do what they do so yeah um thank you this is episode about 345 so there's you're joining a, a list of a lot of people that I've talked to um, and I really appreciate the time and, you know, making space across the continents to have this conversation. So thank you for thank joining you.
1: me. Thank you. I mean, it's incredible the work that you're doing. I'm excited to be 345. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, my dream, my dream is actually to get every guest together at some point here in New Zealand. Um, so oh, maybe that, that will be, that would be the trigger point for your visit and you can come and, see you can meet Brianne and um, see some of the things that are going on down here because I think even though we're a small country I always say we have the ability to show the world new ways of doing things because we can move really really quickly be an example to other places so
1: for sure I would love that
0: yeah great well thank you very much
1: thank you Stephen
0: well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Esha. For me, there was a whole bunch of highlights. As you could tell, we were kind of bouncing around all kinds of ideas about what the future of business might be and where we're headed. I do hope that stories like the ones captured in her book our inspirations to other people, because if we could get more people on board with the role that business can play, I think it would make a profound difference to our world. If you enjoy this, then don't forget there's lots more in the back catalog, so check that out at theseeds.nz or in any podcasting app you're using. Please leave a rating and review, and tell one other person about the show. Until next time, ka kite ano.